Hello and welcome to the May 3rd, 2022 Annals of Internal Medicine podcast. I'm Dr. Christine Lane, Annals Editor-in-Chief, with highlights of what's new in the journal since our last podcast. Let's get right to the highlights. Syncope is a vexing problem for clinicians. Often the etiology is benign, but some causes can be life-threatening. Several risk scores have been developed to assist emergency department staff triage of patients, but none have been widely used in clinical practice. Consequently, the difficulty in distinguishing patients with a life-threatening etiology from those who merely swooned leads to hospitalization in up to 80% of patients who present to an emergency department with syncope. Associated medical costs are estimated to exceed $2.4 billion annually in the U.S. The first article I'll note is an international validation study that found that the Canadian syncope risk score showed good performance in the identification of patients with syncope at low risk for serious outcomes and therefore who were safe to be sent home from the emergency department. The Canadian syncope risk score was developed as a decision tool to be used after emergency department assessment to identify patients who are at low risk for serious outcomes within the next 30 days. Initial validation of the Canadian syncope risk score demonstrated high prognostic accuracy, but other validation studies showed only moderate performance. The Canadian syncope risk score had not yet been compared to a validated syncope risk score, and the performance and utility outside of Canada remained unknown. It was also unknown whether the Canadian syncope risk score allows for the prediction of serious outcomes beyond 30 days or how well the Canadian syncope risk score predicts a composite of only serious clinical outcomes rather than the previously used composite that also included procedural interventions. Researchers from the University of Basel, Switzerland studied 2,283 patients aged 40 years or older who presented to the emergency department within 12 hours of syncope to externally validate the Canadian syncope risk score and compare it with another validated score the Osservatorio Epidemiologico Sulla Syncope Nelasio score. Patients were selected from 14 hospitals in eight countries and were evaluated with both the Canadian Syncope Risk Score and the Osservatorio Epidemiologico Sulla Syncope Nelasio scores with follow-up at 6, 12, and 24-month intervals after discharge. The authors found that the Canadian syncope risk score was good for predicting adverse clinical outcomes. They also found that by applying the Canadian syncope risk score, More than half of patients, 60.8%, were triaged to the lower risk group in whom hospitalization often may not be necessary. In contrast, after presenting at the emergency department, more than one in three patients in this low risk group were hospitalized. Less than 1% of patients identified as low risk by the Canadian syncope risk score had adverse clinical outcomes at 30 days. However, the researchers also noted that the clinician classification of syncope at emergency department discharge may explain the superior performance of the Canadian syncope risk score in this study. According to the authors, the incremental value and clinical utility of the Canadian score remains unclear and warrants further study. Until that study happens, many patients who present to emergency departments with benign syncope remain likely to be hospitalized for observation. Frailty is clinically defined as a state of increased vulnerability related to decline in reserve and function across multiple physiologic systems such that the ability to cope with stressors is compromised. Frailty is associated with a higher likelihood of heart failure, and frail patients with heart failure have a higher risk for death, hospitalizations, and functional decline. Thus, it is important to consider frailty in the care of patients with heart failure. 
The next article is a post-hoc analysis of the dapagliflozin and prevention of adverse outcomes in heart failure randomized control trial that found that dapagliflozin improved outcomes in heart failure patients regardless of frailty status, with reductions being the largest among the most frail patients. Researchers from the University of Glasgow used the Rockwood cumulative deficit approach to investigate the efficacy of dapagliflozin according to frailty status in a post-hoc analysis of the trial. This trial previously demonstrated that the drug compared with placebo reduced the risk for worsening heart failure events and death and improved symptoms when added to standard therapy. The analysis showed that 50% of the patients including in the trial were frail and frailty was associated with more impairment in health status and worse clinical outcomes, including hospitalization. The authors also found that the use of dapagliflozin substantially reduced risk for worsening heart failure events and death and was associated with improved symptoms, physical function, and quality of life, regardless of frailty. According to the authors, these findings are important considering the common reluctance of clinicians to introduce new medications to patients that are perceived to be frail. There are strong calls to improve the diversity of the U.S. physician workforce to better reflect the diversity of the U.S. population. Efforts to improve medical equity for patients should consider medical school admission policies an important target. Unfortunately, the next article reports a study that shows the negative effect of affirmative action bans at public universities on these efforts. Researchers from the University of California, Los Angeles, the University of Pittsburgh, Columbia University, and Harvard University used publicly available data on state affirmative action bans to examine the association between such bans and the percentage of enrollment from underrepresented racial and ethnic groups at 21 public medical schools between 1985 and 2019. The schools were compared to public medical schools in states without affirmative action bans. The authors tracked the reported proportions of four mutually exclusive racial and ethnic groups that are underrepresented in medicine. The researchers identified these groups as Black, Hispanic, American Indian or Native Alaskan, and Native Hawaiian or other Pacific Islander. They found that affirmative action bans were associated with a 5.5 percentage point decrease in enrollment of underrepresented students relative to control schools because underrepresented students accounted for approximately 14.8% of medical students in banned schools in the year before ban implementation, the 5.5 percentage point reduction implies an approximately 37% relative reduction in underrepresented students. According to the authors, these findings are important for understanding the overall lag in diversity representation of the medical student body and physician workforce. They also suggest that despite national efforts to improve enrollment diversity, state-level policy related to admissions is a critical factor. The topic of this month's In the Clinic Review is type 1 diabetes mellitus. Internal medicine physicians tend to be much more comfortable with the care of patients with type 2 diabetes than with the care of those with type 1 diabetes. This practical article reviews the epidemiology, diagnosis, and treatment of patients with type 1 diabetes, including advice about when it is helpful to involve endocrinologists in their care. The review is accompanied by patient information and a quiz to earn CME credits and MOC points. Also new is an Annals on Call podcast with Dr. Fatima Syed from Duke University, the author of the In the Clinic article I just mentioned. Dr. Syed offers a valuable perspective as an endocrinologist who cares for patients in a general internal medicine practice. Also new are ACP Journal Club summaries and commentaries of recent articles that the evidence-based medicine group at McMaster University identified as being methodologically rigorous and of greatest clinical relevance. 
Finally, the New Humanities offerings are an On Being a Doctor essay on professional courtesy and the way it has changed over time, and a graphic medicine from the On Being Doctor Mom series called Bedtime Hack. For listeners who currently or have ever had to put young children to bed, you may find this one amusing. Also a reminder that you will find audio recordings of the On Being a Doctor and On Being a Patient essays at annals.org. Some of them make excellent bedtime stories for grown-ups. That brings us to the end of this podcast. You will find the articles I've mentioned and lots of others on annals.org. Stay well and return in two weeks for the next podcast. Thanks to Beth Jenkinson and Andrew Langman for their technical support.